0: by golly, I want to talk about Resurrection Sunday. And I wouldn't go to today, so I just want to welcome you all. Happy Resurrection Sunday. He is risen. Yep, there you go. I knew I could get an old religious church response from you. (laughs) Today is going to be um, Resurrection Sunday. Can I just tell you, I've been a pastor now for, I think it's 13 years. Before that, you know, I wasn't. (laughs) but I ought to be to the point in my Christian walk where a Resurrection Sunday message should just be easy if Darcy if just you and me were sitting I could talk about the resurrection until your ears fall off and it would be exciting to me at least I would just well you call me any day it doesn't matter Resurrection is good any day 365 days a year so I, I try to put together a sermon for Resurrection Sunday even after, it's not Resurrection Sunday anymore. And, and man, I can't find my backside with either hand. And I'm like, wow, I wonder if I'm done. Like, maybe God's just finished. He just took the anointing away. But I didn't think that was true. I think it was Friday, Friday or Saturday morning. I think it was Friday. I had like 10 pages of notes, scriptures. It's only just scriptures. It's like three different, four different resurrection Sunday sermons that just, they, they, they're like, they like the parable of the seed in the soil, you know? It hit the seed of that sermon, hit the ground. I had a spun up with some scriptures and went, Pfft. there was nothing. There was nothing. There was nothing. And I'm praying Friday morning, and I'm going to play it for you today. Um, in this third day song, I got my oldies worship list. And this third day song came up. And that song has kind of been my personal anthem. It's I'm praying, God, I want that life right there. That's your life. That's going to be my life. I am going to be a minister of what that says as a street pharmacist. In Jesus' name. Everywhere I go. And all of a sudden, the sermon came to me. It came to me in just a list of statements. I just quick typed them into my computer and kept on worshiping. And then, you know... A little bit yesterday, a little bit this morning, mostly this morning, I blew him out. So I'm excited. It's not going to be stuff you haven't heard. I love Peter. Peter said this. He's like, hey, listen, in Second Peter, he knows that he's about to, this earthly tent of his is about done. And he's like, I'm going to tell you some stuff here in this letter. I'm not going to tell you anything you don't already know, but I think it's good that you hear it again. I don't know how you come up with a, an original, sorry, I burped. You come up with an original Resurrection Sunday sermon. I'm not worried about it. If you know it, awesome. You need to hear it again. If you don't know it, awesome. You need to hear it. So, here's where I'm going to start. 1 Peter 3.15 But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you yet with gentleness and reverence. I, I just promise you, you ask me for the hope that's in my heart, and you better bring lunch, because we're going to have a conversation, because it's so glorious. So I want to make sure, I, I mean, I think all of you would you know, consider yourselves to be born-again Christian people. I want to make sure every one of you is comfortable, that deep-seated in you, you understand foundationally what that cross is about and what that resurrection is about. And I want you also, you're going to hear lots of scriptures, you know, not 13 pages. I deleted it all and just left this. Um, But you'll hear scriptures today so that when you give your defense, your apologia, I think is the Greek word back there. Uh, when, When someone says, well, why? You can say, here's why. Here's how I know. Okay. It could be a little context, right? This is not my gospel presentation. The gospel's coming next, right after this. But a little context. All of mankind stands before God today. Every man, woman, and child in either one of two states. Either righteous or unrighteous. That's it. There's no in between. There's nobody that's like, you know, I'm not on the devil's team, but I haven't yet decided. Or the people, how about this one? This is one that just breaks my heart. Yeah, Jesus is my Savior, but He's not my Lord. It's like, well, guess what? He's not your Savior if He's not your Lord. He's just not. You don't understand how to come into covenant with Jesus. If you can think of him as your Savior, yet you get to live your life however you want. There's no repentance. There's no understanding of unrighteousness. So from the perspective of eternal relationship with God, all of mankind stands either righteous before God or unrighteous before God. And the only ones that stand righteous before God are the ones that have Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Savior. There is no righteousness outside of Jesus Christ. I don't care if you're Mother Teresa. I don't care if you're whoever you might think is the most awesomely righteous, God-looking person. They are filthy because the standard of righteousness that's required to be with God is his righteousness. So if somebody says, I'm good, as a matter of fact, I shared the gospel with the husband of a lady that goes to church here. And he said, well, you know what, I'll just take my chances because I think I'm going to be okay. And I'm like, man, you are not going to be okay. You have to understand that you could compare yourself to me and you're like, King Wonderful. But you cannot compare yourself to God and be anything but filthy rags. And if you think you're going to stand before God in your righteousness and come out okay, you have the worst possible deception that any person can have. Righteous, Jesus Christ. Unrighteous, not Jesus Christ. That's the end of the conversation. Somebody didn't mute themselves? <laughs> just, hey, hey, Zoom people. Hello, Zoom. One of you guys is talking to somebody and you're not muted. And we hear all your secrets. So just hit that little mute thing. Okay, all right. Well, that was the first sentence of my sermon. It is going to be 3 o'clock. Let me just establish unrighteousness for you. Romans 3.10, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, or excuse me, not even one. In all of the population of humanity, there is no righteousness, zero, outside of Jesus Christ. Not his, him personally, but those that would be, would be having his righteousness. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Whose glory? God's glory. Not my glory, not the really cool guy's glory. The very glory of God is the standard. And all have sinned, and any sin surrenders the glory of God. And corrupts us to the point where we can't have it back based upon our own righteousness. And remember this, because it's important to understand the whole, the whole conversation about the cross and the resurrection. Romans 6.23, the beginning part, for the wages of sin is death. See, sin has consequence, absolute consequence. If a person commits a sin, and remember we know all do, right? There's none righteous, no not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So, so there is no club of people who happen to be the ones, right? Every human being falls into the category of unrighteous sinner. And the wage of sin is death. And death, in the, in the biblical context, means eternally separate from God, experiencing the eternal wrath of God as the just recompense for that sin. You know... If you think about, and this is a very biblical perspective, when you think about sin, think of it creating a debt, right? Like an eye for an eye, right? If Jacob pokes out my eye, he's created a debt. He owes me an eye. Jacob, give me my eye back. So, so I have the biblical, you know, like the the, not the mercy right, but the justice right. That if you take mine, I get yours. Because you created a debt when you poked my eye out. Don't, don't, don't poke my other eye out, Jacob. It creates a debt. That debt is between you and God. And it's eternal. And you cannot satisfy it. Okay, let's talk about this, this term Messiah or Christ. Everybody's heard the term Messiah, right? If you, if you read the Bible, right? The Old Testament uses the term Messiah. Okay, Joey. New Testament, where's Keith when I need him? (laughs) New Testament uses the word Christ. Messiah and Christ are the same term. One comes from the Hebrew language, the other comes from the Greek language. Messiah, Christ, same thing. It means anointed one, anointed. Messiah is the anointed one. So Israel, the Jewish people were looking. They've had the prophecies, all these things. Messianic. Have you heard that word, messianic prophecies? These are things in the scriptures that speak to this Messiah that they were expecting. Or if you were Greek, to this Christ that you were expecting. And And that person that was coming would have the anointing of God, and that's how they would know that was their Messiah. That was the Christ, was because they would be the anointed one. There's The Bible is full of messianic prophecies. It's full of messianic prophecies, so we don't have to wonder if that Messiah had come or didn't come, or was it this one or was it that one. There's tons. I'm going to read to you one. Um, God wanted um, Darcy to read the first part of it for me already. I think that's beautiful when God puts a scripture that you declared over the church, and I'm going to read it to you today. Isaiah 61, I'll read to you verses 1 through 3. This is speaking of the Messiah. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty, freedom, liberty to the captives, and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting, so they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. So, see, this was a thing that the Jewish people were anticipating in their Messiah. The problem the Jewish people had is they didn't understand that he wasn't coming once, he was coming twice. And the first time he was going to come, and he was going to do this, but he was going to do this according to the bondage of sin that was in the world. The first deliverance that Messiah was going to make was from sin. People could get free of sin in Messiah But he said, I'm coming back. If I leave, I'll come back. And when he comes back, he's going to deliver from the bondage of all the evil empires of this world, the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. And those are the messianic prophecies because Israel had been under the Assyrians, under the Babylonians, under the Visians and the Thoseians, and, and when Jesus came under the Romans, right? They're always under somebody's thumb because they never kept covenant with their God. And they're like, when Messiah comes, he's going to punch Rome in the face and we're going to get our kingdom back. And they will because Jesus will come and he will establish his kingdom on earth for 1,000 years. But this time wasn't that time. We're still waiting for that time. Okay, so... The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to to set the captives free, to open the eyes of the blind. That's the messianic prophecy. Then comes this guy named Jesus. And when he hits the proper time, he goes to the River Jordan, and he's baptized by John the Baptist to fulfill all righteousness. He didn't have any sin to repent from. And then the Holy Spirit descends from heaven like a dove and stays on him. He's led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. He fasts and doesn't eat for 40 days. He's tempted by Satan himself, but he doesn't fail. He comes out of that wilderness. He goes back to his hometown. He walks into the synagogue. He asks for a particular scroll of scripture. They hand it to him. He reads from that scripture. And he, Jesus, came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up and read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book and found the place where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, and he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Can you imagine? They're waiting, and they're waiting, and they're waiting. And he opens up the scroll, and he says, I'm the guy. Jesus knew who He was. Jesus knew that He was Messiah. John 10: 24 and 25. The Jews then gathered around him, him, Jesus, and were saying to Him, "How long will you keep us in suspense?" Who's asking this question? The Jews. The Jews are like, "Who are you? You're somebody. We know you're somebody." How long are you going to keep us in suspense? Jesus is like, I didn't keep you in any suspense. I told you in the synagogue who I was. How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. You know what the works are? The blind eyes are open. The deaf ears hear. The lame walk. Bread and fish are multiplied and thousands of people are fed. Demons flee. Demons like, oh, you're the Christ. What are you here to mess with us? That's what he's talking about. John 10, 37 and 38, Jesus speaking. If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. Why? Because I don't have any anointing. And I say I'm the Christ, and the Christ is the anointed one. If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. See, the anointing is what marked the Christ. Jesus didn't come and say, hey, just believe me. Lots of guys probably did that. Hey, just believe me. Messiah right here. Come on. Take it, an offering. No, no. Jesus said, don't even believe me except for that the works I do because you're waiting for the anointed one and only the anointed one can do the works. He pointed them right back to their own scriptures. John 3, verses 1 and 2. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a big shot. He was a Pharisee. He was on the Sanhedrin. He was like the the, the council of the Big shot Jewish people, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless (coughs) excuse me, God is with him. See, Nicodemus knew who Jesus was, but Nicodemus didn't even know that he knew who Jesus was. So he's like, it seems like you must be, because nobody can do the works that you do except that God is with you but I don't think I quite understand. Jesus knew who he was. He didn't understand it, but Nicodemus knew who he was. There's a third person who knew who Jesus was, and he also knew Jesus' mission, but he knew who Jesus was for another reason. John the Baptist. John 1, 32-34. John testified saying, John the Baptist, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. I did not recognize him, but he, God the Father, he who sent me to baptize in water, said to me, he upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. Now that's because of the anointing. John the Baptist was told by God the Father, that you go prepare the way for my Christ, my Messiah, to come. You do it by having people confess their sins, and then you baptize them into a baptism of repentance, because there is no coming without repentance. He said, you'll know which one he is, because you'll see the Spirit of God descending from the heavens, and will rest upon him and stay. That's the anointing. When that Holy Spirit got on that Jesus, that was the anointing. That's how he did what he did. John the Baptist again, uh, John chapter 1, verse 29. The next day he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See, he knew who Jesus was, and he knew what his mission was, to take away the sin of the world. Jewish people were given a law by God through a mediator named Moses. Tons and tons of laws, all these things, all the same uh, morality was written on the hearts of people. That that they would know right from wrong. God has given us a conscience to be able to know. But the Jewish people had had like you know carved out on tablets of stone and written down for them. All the laws that they had to keep to be right with God. They've been making sacrifices according to that process for centuries and centuries before Jesus came. But none of those sacrifices was sufficient to take away the sin of the world. If you read in Hebrews, you'll see, speaking of the Day of Atonement, that it had to be done again and again and again. And again, because the high priest that made the offering was not perfect and righteous, and the offering that the high priest made was not perfect and righteous. Only the perfect and spotless Lamb of God could accomplish taking away the sin of mankind. So John the Baptist called him the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, right? He wasn't the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world when he was born. He wasn't essentially the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world when he was anointed with the Holy Spirit. He could only be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world once he'd been tested and tried as every man, woman, had ever been tested and failed. So in order to be the Lamb of God that would be, offered and accepted for the sins of the world, Jesus had to be tested as any one of us has ever been tested. So how God did that? I don't know how he did that, but he did. Jesus, if he had been tested and failed, would not have been the spotless Lamb of God. Or if Jesus would have never committed a sin, like they put him in a cave and they just pushed bread under the door so that he couldn't look with lust with his eyes or speak a wrong word with his mouth, He wouldn't have been the spotless lamb of God. He would not have been sufficient without the testing that was necessary for him to be sufficient. He had to fulfill the law, not just break the law, but fulfill the law, so he had to be tested in every one of them. Only the perfect and spotless Lamb of God can take away the sins of the world. That brings us then to Jesus' passion. You heard the movie The Passion of the Christ. That word passion means suffering. It's like that movie was to show us, to try to give us a glimpse, some sense, however small, what it was like to be Jesus and to suffer the wrath of God for the sin of all of mankind. That's the cross. That's the final testing for Jesus, the Son of Man. Because a man had to come and fulfill the law on behalf of all men. Jesus, the Son of Man. Final test was his Passion Week. Final test was getting his beard pulled out and the meat flogged off his back and getting uh, beaten and punched and spat upon and humiliated and mocked and, and being stretched out on a tree and nailed to that tree. That's the cross. That's Jesus. That's not you and that's not me if we have Jesus. But i got to tell you, the person who says, hey, I'll go with myself and see how I do, I think I'll be all right before God, guess what? All that wrath that he took for them, they're going to take it too without Jesus. See, sin's not free. People think, oh, my sin was forgiven like God just forgave it. He didn't forgive it. He moved it. There was a transaction that happened at that cross. For every person that would trust by faith in Jesus Christ. A transaction happened at that cross. All of their sin and all the wrath associated with their sin was transferred from them to the perfect and spotless Lamb of God. That's what happened at that cross. That's why the cross is so important. Justice has to be served. If Jesus didn't go to the cross, then there's a sin justice problem that faith can't solve. It had to be paid for. The transaction, the, spot, the spotless blood of the Lamb in exchange for the sin of all mankind. That's the transaction that happened at the cross. So here's Jesus. He's on the cross. He's about to take his last breath. John nineteen twenty-eight through 30. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, to fulfill the scripture said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said to himself, "It, or he said, "It is finished." And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Jesus believed he'd finished his mission. Jesus was certain, I guess, that he'd never committed a sin doesn't mean he didn't. It just means he didn't think he did. And he said it's done. I've passed all the tests. I've taken all the tests. I've felt all the pain. I don't even know what the spiritual torment must have been like that Jesus had to deal with that would take away the eternal wrath of God for just my own sin, let alone the all of mankind. It's finished. Right there, it's finished. And you need to understand, for yourself and for anybody that you talk to, there were people that will tell you, well, Jesus, I mean, he they really did. They messed him over good, but he wasn't really dead. I'm telling you, he was really dead. When it came time, there were two guys on either, a guy on either side of Jesus. When it was the day of preparation for this big Passover thing, Sabbath day, and they're like, we can't leave that skink. stinky carcasses hanging on those crosses for tomorrow. We need to get them off of there. So they got permission to make sure they were dead. So they went to the guy on this side of Jesus, who wasn't dead yet. They took a big hammer and they busted his legs. Because now he can't push himself up to breathe and he's going to asphyxiate hanging on that cross and be dead and be done. And they went over to the other guy who wasn't dead yet. They took the same hammer and they smashed his legs so that he would not be able to breathe, and he would die quickly. They went to Jesus, and they said, he's already dead. We don't need to break his legs. And you know there's a prophecy that said, all this is going to happen to Jesus, but not a bone of his body would be broken. If they'd have smacked his legs and busted his bones, guess what? He's still waiting for Messiah. They couldn't, because God wouldn't let them. So they did something else. They said, well, we better be sure so they took a spear, and they jammed it up under his ribcage. And they went up there until they found his heart. And they knew they found his heart because blood and water came pouring out the hole where that spear went up. Because the heart is full of blood, and wrapped around the heart is a thing called the pericardium, I think. And the pericardium is a sack with watery stuff in there, and out it all came. I'm telling you, Jesus is dead. Dead, dead. No pulse, no respiration, cell activity, brain activity, dead, dead as a rock, dead. Amen. Why, why, why did, why, why did Jesus? <laughs> I got to stutter all of a sudden. Why did Jesus have to die? 2 Corinthians five twenty one. I can't read the scripture without getting a tear in my eye. He is the Father, God the Father. Him is Jesus. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Let me read that to you again. He made him who knew no sin, the perfect and spotless Lamb of God, to be sin on Pat Brady's behalf so that Pat Brady might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. That's why. That was a great exchange. My sin for his righteousness. My evil for his good. Remember, the wage of sin is death. Somebody's got to die. And if it's not Jesus, guess what? Everybody's got to die. Not die like, you know, I just die. We're all eternal beings. Die eternally and experience the wrath of God that we earned for our sin. The cross. So then, um, that begs my favorite question. How do we know? You going to go to heaven, Darcy? Yes, sir. How do you know? You could tell me. I'm sure you could. But most people can't. I say, how do you know? You going to heaven? How do you know? Well, I'm a good guy. That's the best you got. (laughs) Let me just tell you. I mean, I might not know much, but I know you're not going to heaven if you think it's because you're a good guy. How how do we know? How do we know that Jesus was truly perfect, spotless and sinless? How do we know? How do we know that Jesus completely fulfilled the law? How do we know? How do we know that Jesus was found sufficient and accepted by God as payment for the sin of all mankind? Remember, every sin creates a debt. More sin, bigger debt. That's why Romans says, that if you continue in this horrible lifestyle that you're in, God has taken away your conscience, that all you do is heap on yourself wrath for the day of wrath. Why? Because little sin, massive wrath. Lots of sin, insanely massive wrath. How do we know? How do we know that God's accepted him? How do we know that God said, you are sufficient, I receive you on behalf of all the sin of mankind. I know. How do we know? You know how we know? We know because the wage of sin is death. And Jesus didn't stay dead. How come Jesus didn't stay dead? Because death had no hold on him. How come? Because he never sinned. How do you know? When you place your faith in Jesus, how do you know, Ben? How do you know That it's sufficient. Like, you know, if you owed somebody a million bucks, I'm like, I got you covered, Ben. You're hoping I got a million bucks, right? I say I took care of it. And then the police come to your house two weeks later and arrest you because you didn't pay your bill. Because I didn't have a million bucks. How do we know Jesus had a million bucks? Because he didn't stay dead. Because sin had no hold on him. So death had no hold on him. So the grave had no hold on him. Because he didn't stay dead. When did he didn't stay dead? Sorry, I'm using pretty poor grammar. On Resurrection Sunday. That's the glory of Resurrection Sunday. The the cross, the glory of the cross is that somebody thought so much about you that they offered themselves unto the eternal wrath of God for your benefit and mine. That's the glory of the cross. That's where the transaction happened. But we only know the transaction happened because of the resurrection that happened on the third day. So when somebody says, how do you know? You tell me, Sherry, how do you know that your faith is placed in the right spot? You say, because he resurrected. Because Jesus Christ is risen. Because death couldn't hold him. And because death couldn't hold him, guess what? Death can't hold you. Because you are in him. When you... Receive Jesus Christ. When you, when you humbled yourself before the gospel, guess what happened? You died on the cross with Jesus and you were resurrected out of that tomb with Jesus. Never, ever, ever, ever to experience death again in the eternal sense. Remember Janet told me about hope? I was supposed to preach about hope on Resurrection Sunday. Hope, Yeah. So there's this thing called the law of sin and death. You ever heard of that bird? The law of sin and death? Yeah. I'm going to help you with it just a little. Okay, good. There you go. Hey, well, write that down. First time I heard that was Pat Brady. I better look in the Bible and be sure. The law of sin and death is, is what governs God's relationship with all of mankind. If you sin, you die. The death we talked about, the eternal wrath of God, death. If you sin, you die. But see, we have hope that we don't have to experience the law of sin and death. Romans 8, chapter 1, excuse me, Romans 8 is chapter, verses 1 through 4. You ready for this? If you have Jesus Christ, bird, there is no condemnation for you. Done. Over with. Cha-ching, that's it, sis. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Condemnation is the eternal wrath of God. It's the penalty for your sin. Therefore, there is now no condemnation. Now, let me just stop for a second. Jesus died, right? He paid for the sin of all of mankind. But there's still condemnation for men and ladies if they don't have Christ Jesus. That's a qualifying statement. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. So see, now with Jesus, you live in a whole different relational legal system with God. You live under the law of the spirit of life. Holy Spirit is in you. That's your law. Sin, no law. Sin again, no law. Quit sinning. But you don't live in that legal system anymore. The law of sin and death, J.J., does not apply to you in Christ Jesus. You could, don't you ever, but you could actually say a bad word to your mother and you don't have to go to hell. Why? Because you ain't in that program. You're in a different program. You've been set free from the law of sin and death. You should say hallelujah. Amen. Yep. If you want to say it with gusto, see Noah. He'll show you. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Amen. Come on. I'm not the best cheerleader in the world, but I'm glad that that moved you to have a little clap, because it's the biggest deal in all of eternity is that you've been set free from the law of sin and death by the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus because you humbled yourself to the gospel, you repented from your sin, and you trusted that that transaction actually happened in Jesus Christ and that there's nothing else you bring to the table but faith in Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. Amen, amen, amen. So... That's the, that's the cross, that's Passion Week, that's the resurrection, that's the whole thing. It's all the prophecy, the messianic prophecies. It's Jesus fulfilling the messianic prophecies. So we could know where our faith goes into the one who's anointed. How do we know he's anointed? Because of the works that he did. And let me just tell you, if we will humble ourselves unto holiness and believing, what did Kennard say? You get what you believe? That same anointing dwells in each and every one of us for the very same purpose as The Father sent me, so I send you, says Jesus. We got nothing. Patty Carter, he can't, you can't tell somebody what God has to say about them without the anointing. It's only the presence of God in you. What a gift, right? Hey, wow, the devil's lying to you. You need to hear what God says. I have a friend. Her name is Patty. She's going to tell you what God says. And then... And then, didn't Kennard say, you need to know who you are? Didn't he? Didn't he? I'm almost a prophet. God's going to speak to you today. He's going to tell you who you are. One I did on purpose, the other God just did because he wanted to ice that cake. Come on. It's awesome, it's awesome, it's awesome. Okay, so now, that's all I have to say about that topic. (laughs) Or not. <laughs> yeah, right, until somebody asked me a question, and then hopefully you brought lunch. This song has been my, my anthem. I, I've, I've, I've experienced it and I've not to greater or lesser degrees. I want it. I want it back. I want the fullness of it back. So I, I don't know whether this song will move you or it won't move you, but I picked a version with the lyrics so you can hear the song and see the words. See, this is my prayer for you and for me, that that our relationship with God, through Jesus Christ, through Jesus, in the Holy Spirit, would reflect what this song is saying. I want to go, I want to be a street pharmacist like Dana, and I want to go, and I want to minister the pharmacy of the word of God and the power of the kingdom to every person I run into. I want to find people who've been depressed and broken, and what did Jesus say? Oppressed. All that stuff. And I want them to be free because they know the truth. And the power of God sets them free. That's what I want.